insight from RNZ. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley, and this programme explores high-profile undercover police operations. The police closely guard their undercover techniques, but two high-profile cases in the past year have hit the headlines and shone a light on the world of police undercover practices. Some of those cases have sparked criticism from judges of the highest courts in the land. Inside explores those cases and the techniques used by police. Fake criminal organisations, false search warrants and charges. Police undercover operations have been criticised for bending the rules to get convictions. But are they breaking the law in an attempt to uphold it? A defence lawyer, Jonathan Krebs, has defended a number of high-profile criminal cases and says some undercover operations are crossing the line. Like every other person, I'm all in favour of the principle that serious crime should be solved. But I shudder, and I know a lot of academic um, criminal lawyers, and I'm not one of those, uh, also shudder uh, in terms of principle that this is the beginning of the slippery slope. But the group who represents frontline police says the courts provide the checks and balances. The Police Association's President Greg O'Connor believes the convictions speak for themselves. You've only got to look at the Reddy case to see what can be achieved through police using innovative techniques that have been allowed by the courts. As a result, we've got a woman and her child's body recovered and the offenders arrested. That really speaks for itself. There was obviously considerable legal argument over the admissibility and the evidence was allowed. So case closed. I'm Edward Gay and this insight explores two cases that have been in court in the past year. Police undercover operations are shrouded in secrecy. When undercover officers give evidence in court, the public gallery is cleared, the doors are closed and screens are put up over the windows. The real identities of the officers are not even known by the presiding judge, and the media are forbidden to report even the officers' pseudonyms. It's one of the only times the country's courts are not open and transparent. Hi, Tony Boucher, barrister. Tony Boucher is now a defence lawyer, but in a past life he was an undercover police officer. I caught up with him at the North Shore District Court where he spoke about his time undercover. It's been a long time since I was in the undercover program, but I can't imagine that much has changed in that time. Every situation you come across which involves some sort of criminal offending is very fluid. Um, you're required to make instant decisions. Um, you are very reliant on your training in the criminal law and making those decisions. Uh, always certainly of paramount concern to me was that you didn't encourage anybody to commit a crime that they wouldn't ordinarily com commit, that is to say that you wouldn't act as an agent provocateur. The job's complex and officers have to rely on their gut instincts. 
But what are the most extreme challenges that officers face? Well, there's two. I think one is your personal safety, uh, and every undercover cop is confronted with that at some stage, either by way of challenge, and the challenges can be minor or serious challenges. I think that's the first thing. The other is where you come across some sort of crime which is really serious and you just really don't know what to do. For example, I know that one of my colleagues was present when a um, young girl was put on the block by some gang members. And so, you know, that never happened to me. I was never confronted with that, but certainly I was involved with the challenges. So it's your personal safety, but also uncovering evidence of a particularly violent and horrible crime. Tony Boucher says in his day the rules were clear. Officers, including those undercover, had to operate within the law. When you are doing that work, you can't commit crime to uncover crime. There are occasions where agents have used drugs and the instruction in those days was firstly that uh, you had to simulate, you had to pretend to take it and if that didn't work that you had to report it as soon as possible to your operator and then it was dealt with that way. One of the most recent operations to hit the headlines was the case of Kamal Reddy. RNZ News at 7, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. A High Court judge says the Auckland man who murdered his ex-partner and her three-year-old daughter ten years ago had committed the perfect crime. But Justice Asher said Kamal Reddy was undone by a police undercover operation. Reddy thought he got away with murder. He killed his ex-girlfriend, Pakiza Yusuf and her three-year-old daughter, Jojo, before putting their bodies in the back of his car and driving to Auckland's North Shore. Kamal Reddy spent hours here beneath the Akuranga Busway overbridge on Auckland's North Shore, digging a hole amongst the mangroves and stones to bury the bodies of Miss Yusuf and her three-year-old daughter Jojo. He'd been shown the spot by his uncle Bal Naidu, who was site manager at the then nearly finished bridge that forms part of the Akuranga Busway station. And in the following weeks he continued paying Miss Yusuf's rent and even the sky bill to make it look like she was still alive. He moved her furniture out of her flat and got rid of her personal property and recycling bins around South Auckland. Seven years later, he thought he'd got away with the murders. But Reddy became the target of an undercover operation. Officers posed as members of an organised criminal group, gained his trust and eventually persuaded him to confess to the murders, including how, where and why he did it. He even led one undercover officer to this very spot, posing for a photograph where I'm standing now. Days later, police found the remains of Miss Yusuf and her daughter in a muddy grave, and Reddy was arrested. But how did police convince a killer to reveal everything when he had so much to lose? In 2014, nearly eight years after the murders took place, Reddy was approached by an undercover officer who, armed with the knowledge Reddy used to work as a mechanic, asked for a valuation on a car. Two earlier attempts to befriend Reddy had failed, but this time an officer struck up a friendship with Reddy, introducing him to a fictitious crime network and taking him on odd jobs that started with repossessing cars and later included transporting stolen property and stealing guns. But it was a make-believe world dreamed up by the police. The crimes were fake, everyone involved was working for the police, and the entire operation was recorded on wiretaps. Eventually, the crimes got more serious, with Reddy often being paid small amounts of money for his work. He believed he was going to be offered membership to the exclusive and wealthy crime network if only he adhered to the group's philosophy of trust, honesty and loyalty. 
One of the key parts of the operation involved a meeting in a Whangarei motel room with a man who claimed to have violently assaulted an elderly couple during an armed robbery. Reddy's lawyer, Jonathan Krebs, picks up the complicated tale being woven around Reddy. Uh, the one you refer to uh, involved a, a person uh, who uh, was not part of the organisation but had heard what a wonderful and effective organisation it was, uh, made contact with the organisation and explained that they were in a difficult position and had committed an aggravated robbery and uh, for a fairly large sum of money and eye-watering sum of money for most people they were able to not only get evidence and destroy it they were able to get evidence from the police station through their contacts with supposedly corrupt police officers they were then able with their contacts with uh, corrupt immigration officers to get this person a false passport and then a false bank account and um uh, that was an example which played out. So it demonstrates to the subjects that the organisation is able to make police problems go away. After several other scenarios, including acting as a lookout in what he thought was the burglary of a firearms collector, Reddy was called in to meet with the boss and asked if there was anything criminal in his past. Initially, Reddy was reluctant, but when he was told the organisation had a corrupt police officer on its books and the officer knew Reddy was a suspect in a murder... Reddy told them everything. The confession was secretly filmed and it was later played to the court. In a calm voice, Reddy told the boss exactly how he'd carried out the murders, how he'd strangled Miss Yusuf with an iron cord and smothered Jojo with a pillow as she slept. The operation was so convincing that when Reddy was arrested, he asked to call the man who he thought was his friend, but was actually an undercover policeman. He's now serving a life sentence with a minimum non-parole period of 21 years. At his sentencing, the Crown Prosecutor Natalie Walker said the Mr Big scenario solved a cold case that would have otherwise remained a mystery. If there is ever an example of the value of undercover policing, this case is it. The crime scenario undercover technique used in this case led police officers directly to the remains of a mother and her daughter after a seven and a half year disappearance. But Mr Krebs says while he has sympathy for that position, he worries rights are being eroded. It may solve otherwise unsolvable crimes and there's been a lot of public discussion about the fact that had the police not employed the Mr Big technique in Mr Reddy's case then it's likely that the case would never have been solved and the family would never have had the remains of their loved ones returned to them for some sort of um, you know, emotional closure albeit seven years after the event or longer. Uh, there's certainly some force in that and I can see that but you know, for every one of those how far does the system have to be eroded in cases where you don't get that sort of benefit? And once the doors open to this, once this becomes the norm, how much further will our uh, investigative techniques slip? Mr Krebs says the technique can generate false confessions because the target believes there'll be no consequences. He says another aspect to the technique is its erosion of the right to silence, something that's been enshrined in law for centuries. What the Mr Big scenario does is completely and utterly evades those protections deliberately and to make it worse they're constructed on the basis that the suspect doesn't even know that they're talking to a police officer. He says if the police encouraged people to commit crimes then they'd be committing entrapment. What we're talking about here is not actually committing the crime itself but entrapping somebody into making a confession without realising they're a talking to a policeman or they have rights not to do so and, and that's the principle uh, which most of us find quite repugnant. 
When it comes to Mr Big Operations, there are no independent checks and balances. The decision to go ahead is made by a senior detective who refers it to an area commander and it's then passed on to senior staff at Police National Headquarters. It's like asking the chief dog whether some young dogs are able to chase some cats. It's um, certainly from inside the tent. Reddy's case is one of seven Mr Big operations launched in New Zealand and only the second to go to a jury. Another recent Mr Big operation was that of Tawera Wickman, who confessed to fatally shaking his 10-month-old baby daughter Tegan after being targeted by the same technique. In the High Court in Wellington, Justice France sentenced Wickman to three years and ten months in prison. It was a case of loving parents, probably out of their depth, doing their best, and a mistake being made born not of anger but frustration. There is here none of the terrible sustained abuse one sees in some other cases. Initially, Wickman denied responsibility for Tegan's injuries, and the investigation stalled until a five-month operation began in 2012, in which he was initiated into what he thought was an organised criminal group. Wickman was paid $300 for his jobs that included repossessing cars and delivering drugs. Again, the police told him the group was founded on trust, loyalty and honesty, and its boss could fix people's problems with police by getting rid of evidence. He too was eventually introduced to Mr Big and confessed to shaking baby Tegan. Wickman was the test case for using the evidence gathered in a Mr Big scenario. Prior to his guilty plea, Wickman's legal team challenged the confession evidence, taking the case to the Court of Appeal. The higher court found the evidence couldn't be used, concluding it was unfair, evaded Wickman's rights and the confession was unreliable. The Crown then took the case to the Supreme Court, which upheld the earlier High Court decision, but with a 3-2 to two majority. In its 210-page finding, the court noted there was a potential for undercover operations to go awry and they can have detrimental effects on suspects. It cited cases in the United Kingdom where undercover police officers have formed long-term sexual relationships with women attached to the group under investigation and in some cases have had children with them. But it also found Mr Big scenarios have a striking ability to solve cold cases. The majority sided with the police, concluding the prejudicial nature of the criminal scenarios were outweighed by the reliability of Wickman's full confession. One of the two dissenting judges was Chief Justice Dame Sean Elias. She found Wickman had effectively been offered the inducement of long-term work with the fake criminal organisation, and that called into question the reliability of his confession. She said substantial resources of the state were used to construct a make-believe world which played on Wickman's hopes and dreams. Dame Shan concluded by saying if her views mean the Mr Big scenario could no longer be used in New Zealand, then that was the price of fair process. That's a position the University of San Francisco's law and psychology lecturer, Professor Richard Leo, would support. Professor Leo's a world authority on false confessions and worked behind the scenes of the Brendan Dassey case, made infamous by the Making a Murderer television series. He visited Auckland earlier this month, where he spoke to the New Zealand Criminal Bar Association. I caught up with him at an inner-city Auckland cafe shortly before he flew home. Professor Leo says the Mr Big technique's not used in the United States because it would be considered unconstitutional and unlawful as it relies on threats and promises.
you're incentivizing somebody to falsely incriminate themselves, and it's under the pretext they don't know they're talking to the police. So it's under the pretext that they are talking to somebody who is a, a criminal or a mafia boss who who would never say anything to the police. So we would call that an inducement or an incentive. So it concerns me because we know that inducements that are coercive or suggest that somebody will not receive any punishment in exchange for the inducement induce false confessions. He says often murder suspects are from low socioeconomic backgrounds and can be vulnerable. So what you tend to have are people who are living on the edges, often unemployed, sometimes drug addicted, coming from broken homes and broken backgrounds. And so the idea of a job, steady employment, be extremely, extremely desirable in a way that ordinary people who take that for granted might not fully understand. And so that could be, again, a kind of inducement or incentive that would make somebody think, all I have to do is falsely admit something that I didn't do to somebody who's never going to say anything to law enforcement because they're an underworld figure and I get this great job. I'm home free only, you know, to then have the system crash in on them. Professor Leo says he would like to see the technique banned, but if the New Zealand courts are to allow it, he argues there should be judicial oversight. In order to do the Mr. Big uh, technique, you have to first get judicial authorization and you have to apply for a warrant and the warrant has to specify why um, you have strong cause to believe the suspects committed the crime and why alternative methods of gathering evidence are not likely to solve the crime. Uh, and so you could try to reduce its frequency, you could try to have it only in the most serious cases where there's no other means necessary. But Professor Leo says even that safeguard would have problems. The judges are going to rubber stamp for the most part, and the police are going to instinctively put together applications and say, we have no other means available. And so what you're going to find is a kind of slippery slope where you know the Mr. Big, yes, has to go through judicial authorization, but almost all of them will be approved, and the police will be a little lazy if they really want to do Mr. Big because it's in their interest. He says as well as the Mr. Big special warrant, he'd recommend a mandatory pre-trial hearing that would assess the prejudicial nature of the evidence before it goes to a jury. In assessing the risks, Professor Leo uses the principle of 18th century English jurist William Blackstone, who said it's better that ten guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer. If we really say in our Anglo-American systems that it is, it is better that ten guilty people go free than one innocent convicted, then this might be the worst type of error. Why? Because of all the types of false evidence, the false confessions are most likely to be believed. Professor Leo says research indicates jurors regard confessions as trumping DNA evidence, even if the DNA evidence points to another offender. He says the confession needs to be assessed in light of corroborative evidence, for example evidence of the accused leading police to the site of a body, as happened in the Reddy case. The Mr Big technique began in Canada and was invented by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the 1990s, where it's been used at least 350 times. 95% of the prosecutions have resulted in convictions, and it's solved cold cases like that of Reddy. But it's also caused wrongful prosecutions. 
One of those is that of Alan Smith, who was charged with the 1974 cold case murder of his neighbour Beverly Smith after his estranged wife implicated him 34 years later. The story caused a splash in the local press, but when Mr Smith's wife repeatedly changed her story, the police had to drop the charges. Speaking from her home in Toronto, Mr Smith's lawyer Alison Craig said the police didn't stop there. Instead, they set up a Mr Big operation. After trawling through Mr Smith's private psychiatric records, they noted his one love was fishing. Undercover police told him he had won a competition and the prize was a fishing trip. Over the course of several months, he became best friends with one of the other winners on this trip, which was actually the main undercover police officer. And they became the best of friends. They went fishing several times a week. They went for coffees together all the time. Gradually, Mr. Smith was introduced to his new best friend's crime boss, so to speak, who was Mr. Big. Mr. Smith then started working as a lookout on what he believed to be drug deals carried out by his new best friends. Aged in his 50s and on a disability benefit, Miss Craig says the police took advantage of his isolation and poverty. The operation climaxed six months later with a phone call in the middle of the night from his new best friend, saying Mr Big was in trouble and needed their help. So off they go in the middle of the night uh, to uh, a parking lot of an abandoned warehouse. And there's Mr Big. Uh, he's got a shotgun. He's covered in, in what appears to be human blood. And there's a dead guy on the floor, which is actually a mannequin wrapped in a tarp. He, having just committed, it would have appeared to everybody, a violent homicide, then ordered Mr. Smith and the best friend to dispose of the body and some other evidence, uh, which they did. Mr. Smith threw what he thought was a body over a cliff. The following day, he was called to another meeting with Mr. Big, who demanded dirt that would reassure him Mr. Smith wouldn't go to the police. Miss Craig says later that night, the undercover officers had a debrief, but by mistake, one of the officers forgot to turn his wiretap off, and the whole conversation was recorded. It later became part of the evidence. They realised Mr Smith was absolutely terrified of Mr Big and of what had just happened and what was to come. They actually made jokes about the fact that as they were having this debriefing, he was probably hanging himself back at the cottage and went as far as to make jokes about the sound effects that would have been made with his feet banging into walls if he was hanging from something. The officers also discussed how the fear factor might cause them problems at the trial, and the officer playing Mr Big talked about how to lie to the judge. Mr Smith made a number of confessions to Mr Big over the coming days, and his story kept changing. When the case got to court, the trial judge didn't allow the confession evidence to go before the jury. The judge described the prosecution evidence as having holes large enough to drive a Mack truck through. By then, Mr Smith had already spent four and a half years in jail. Now he's taking a $19 million compensation case against the police and some of the prosecutors involved. He is a broken man. He was socially isolated and had a lot of social problems before this, and he's ten times worse now. For many months after he was charged, despite having the evidence laid out for him by his lawyers and actually listening to the tapes, he could not or would not believe that these people, particularly the best friend, were undercover police officers. He just could not comprehend that because of, you know, this was his best friend. There are recordings of him 
throughout the the process extremely emotional about how he had never had such a good friend before and his best friend had become very intertwined with Mr. Smith's family, with his grandchildren. He used to bring his grandchildren toys that Mr. Smith himself couldn't afford to buy them. Miss Craig says Mr. Smith has had to move away from his hometown and has had his life destroyed. Unlike New Zealand, the Supreme Court of Canada has imposed tough new rules around the Mr. Big scenario. They include a requirement for the prosecution to prove the value of the confession outweighs the prejudice against the defendant. But Miss Craig says the rules need to be tightened further, and she supports Professor Leo's idea of judicial oversight before an operation is launched, and a second hearing before the evidence goes to the jury. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you need prior judicial authorization to go in and look around someone's car for five minutes, but you don't need it to invade every aspect of somebody's entire life, quite literally, you know, home, family, everything. The New Zealand police declined to be interviewed for this program, but Detective Superintendent Chris Page, who oversees the police undercover unit, provided a written statement. We acknowledge your request and appreciate there is public interest in the topic you are exploring for your documentary. However, after careful consideration, we have decided to decline your request to ensure all investigative options remain open to the police. By discussing our approaches in the public, they could potentially impact on future investigations. The Police Association's President Greg O'Connor says safeguards are in place. The checks and balances ultimately are the court, and the court in both those cases decided that it was admissible. And that's what you're really talking about. That's, that's the ultimate safeguard that society has. And precedent or case law is littered with occasions when the courts have decided that the authorities, the police have gone too far, the confession is unfair, and the jury hasn't got to hear it. In this case, both these cases, it was decided that the jury should hear it, and the jury heard the best evidence, which is the best evidence you can get, which is a properly obtained confession. He says in the case of Reddy, police were not only able to solve a cold case murder, but also return the bodies of Pakiza Yusuf and her three-year-old daughter to their family. There's nothing, I suppose, more unresolved in any family, in any individual, than never to quite know what has happened to a loved one. And the certainty of getting those bodies back, and the certainty of knowing what happened, while it's obviously not going to resolve uh, the whole grief issue, certainly it's part of the healing. So really immeasurable. He says undercover policing is increasingly challenging, especially with developments in information technology and access to online databases. To get these groups, they're very tight groups, they're paranoid about being infiltrated, um, they're paranoid about the people they do business with. So you can imagine you need some reasonably innovative techniques to convince criminals to commit crime in front of and with our officers. But others, including Jonathan Krebs, say we're on a slippery slope. Already um, our laws moved in the last 10 to 15 years from a position where any evidence which is obtained uh, unlawfully is thrown out uh, to a position where, well, hold on a minute, let's have it in unless you can show that it, it's unfair. And you know, the, the, the onus is, is subtly switching. 
The Mr Big technique is seen by the police as an important tool for solving cold case homicides, but its controversial nature means that it's likely to be contested in the courts should police continue to use it. I'm Edward Gay and that's Insight for this week. If you've any thoughts or want to get in touch, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at radionz underscore insight. Edward Gay wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by me, Philip Tolley, with technical production by Dan Bevan. If you don't want to miss out on other insights, keep up by subscribing on iTunes, where you can hear other programmes such as Liz Brown's investigation of the idea of an Auckland pay waiting.